0: But I think it's important because we're about to start our, the fifth and final essay of First Corinthians today. We started Corinthians a long time ago, and we're now moving into this last essay, the resurrection. We finished essay number four last week, men and women in worship. And I just wanted this first Sunday. We're, we're going to be exploring resurrection for a number of weeks. This is a big essay. There's many, many, many homilies that make up this essay, but I just wanted us all together to get a feel for what that sounded like. And what I want to encourage everyone to do is is read chapter 15 each week. Try to just read it each week. We're not going to read it all together every week. We're going to read the different homilies that we'll be looking at throughout it. But that's why I want us to just let it soak in this first week. It's, it's, it's incredible. It's all about resurrection. Last week I was talking with Dave Bronson, and he described resurrection as our singular hope, our singular hope. And I really like that. And it's been resonating with me all week as I've studied this magnificent chapter of Paul's that is concerned wholly with our singular hope, the singular hope of all who believe in the Christ. And and my prayer is that our time exploring this passage, and, and we're going to be in it for a while, but our time exploring it, my prayer is It will allow all of us to move closer to the reality of resurrection. And that our lives would be buoyed and even defined by this hope that death is not the end. This hope that, as St. Paul said in another letter, to die truly is gain. For I think, life lived not afraid of death, is life capable of authentic human beings. It's life capable of a true and tangible imitation of Christ. This fifth essay is considered by many to be Paul's finest moments as far as argument goes. I think we saw in the fourth essay, especially the hymn to love, the the homily on love in chapter 13, that's his finest moment as far as just pure writing. It might be the finest piece of writing ever. But this here is Paul's finest moment when it comes to Argument. He's brilliant here. Withering about this says, Paul at his argument of best ably using the tools of deliberative rhetoric, including examples, analogies, logical consequences, rhetorical questions, and the like. And, And he does present a very solid argument for the absolute necessity of resurrection to the Christian faith. But at the same time, he continues to press the Corinthians to get their theology in order and ultimately to understand that being a Christian is to live like Christ. And in this specific case, if Christ lived into the reality of resurrection, so should they. But one thing we need to be clear about before we start this. Chapter 15 is not, is not an attempt by Paul to prove the resurrection. Resurrection is not something that can be proven in any scientific or historical way. Certainly, we can't go about proving our own resurrection. It's something we believe happens after we die. And as far as Christ's own resurrection, what was provable, what was provable, was that for a large number of people, including Paul himself, His resurrection was a certainty, for they had seen him in some bodily form after his certain death. But proving that reality, that his resurrection was a certainty to these people who saw him, is far different than proving resurrection. One chooses to believe the witness of those who were certain they saw him, or chooses not to believe. And I want to make a side note on that. What I'm saying should not cause grave concern with anyone. Like that word, like grave. grave yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when I created that sentence, I was thinking like, <laughs> <laughs> Here's the thing, I've been criticized before on this, for saying this. And I've even been told, right, right to my face actually, that I mustn't be a Christian if I don't value 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Well, here's the interesting thing, I never said that. I highly value 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In fact, I think it might be one of the most important passages in all of our scriptures. But I do not read it as a proof of resurrection, and I do not use it to try to convince non-believers of our faith. Let me try to explain. What if we could prove, scientifically and historically, beyond a shadow of a doubt, That Jesus Christ rose from the dead. You still have to believe the whole salvation thing works. You still have to believe that when we die, we are going to rise again too. Let's face it, the saints have been dying for thousands of years. Not one has come back to prove that he's still alive. When Jesus was on the cross, He said, It is finished. Death, sin, done with. Life won. You still have to believe that. There's not a lot of proof out there that sin and death are lost. It's okay to let faith be faith. It's okay. Let faith be faith. You know, it's hard in our world where everything has to be proven. Like Who deflated the football? Go there. But faith is called faith for a reason. It's faith. For Paul, the proof of resurrection is not the issue. Believing in the objective reality of it is the issue. For Paul, resurrection was maybe the most foundational issue of the Christian faith. So much so that he says right here in this argument that if it is not true, if Christ did not rise from the dead, then the whole Christian thing is a joke. Our faith is useless. Our faith is in vain. And we might as well carry on however we want for what's the point? Morals, ethics, love even, have no purpose if there is no ultimate meeting with the Creator. If there is no final reconciliation between the human and the divine. If the madness of this world, the chaos, the randomness, and relative transient existence of our earthly reality is the final is the final reality then who cares what we do or what we believe honestly for even then the extremes of evil and goodness are relative they're nothing but cultural phenomena that lack any certainty or authority So, to be a believer in Christ, but to not believe in resurrection, as it seems some of the Corinthians seem to do, is, as Phi says, to have a faith considerably different than Paul's. One wonders whether such faith is still the Christian faith. For Paul, resurrection allows us to insist that Christ died for our sins. It allows us to be certain we are being saved. allows us to be certain we will live with Christ again, forever. N.T. Wright argues it this way when he states, Without the resurrection, there is no reason to suppose that Jesus' crucifixion dealt with sins or with sin. But with the resurrection... The divine victory over sin and hence over death is assured. Is assured. Resurrection is no small thing in the context of the Christian faith. There may not be anything as important. And so as Paul brings his letter to a close, he's going to use this last essay to forcefully, and I think brilliantly argue for it, being essential reality. Being essential reality. Now, many scholars... I. Um, excuse me, sorry, not many scholars, Bailey, sees a very complex structure. I have a slide in there, I don't want to this. Bailey sees a very su- complex structure to this final essay. He sees five parts to it, and multiple homilies within each part. But basically, it starts off, resurrection, the message, and validity of faith. Runs 1 through 20, Resurrection, Adam and Christ, 21 through 28, Resurrection, Ethics, and then Resurrection, Adam and Christ again, and then finally Resurrection, Victory. He he sees sees this, this, and there's a lot of scholars that actually identify a similar pattern, though they tend to group it into three parts, not five, but I think where Bailey's going, we've been using Bailey right along, I don't want to stop using him now, because I think this fits really well that I've been studying over the week. Within this first section here, Resurrection, the Message, Validity of Faith, Bailey has identified two distinct homilies. Resurrection, the message, 1 through 11. We're going to spend some time in that this morning and next week. And then Resurrection, the validity of faith, in 12 through 20. Each of these homilies have their own distinct composition. The first one looks like this, and it's absolutely spectacular. We haven't done this in a while, so I was sort of excited to have a chance to talk about how Paul writes again. So, it's, it's a, it's a seven-section ring composition with an extended center, the extended center I have in bold and underlined. So, section, remember, Paul writes in this style. We've seen this exact form a number of times in 1 Corinthians. So, the first section, I preached, you received, matches the last section, we preached, you believed. And then, grace received in vain matches grace received not in vain, down in 6th. Number three, an apostle delivers tradition. Number five, again, an apostle talks about himself as being an unfit apostle because he used to persecute the church. Those go together. Then he has a brilliant center. Remember, the center of Paul's writing is is the climax. The cross, resurrection, first appearances, later appearances, later appearances, etc. It's really spectacular what Paul does in his writing. So, let's get into it. Paul closed out, some of you might remember from last week, he closed out his fourth essay by reminding the Corinthians that the things he is sharing with them in this letter are not his own biases and views. They are from the Lord. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? If anyone thinks he's a prophet spiritual, so let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's command. All right, Paul's an apostle. Paul's an apostle. And here, as he begins the foundational essay, he again reiterates this. All right. That this is not Paul's opinion on Christian theology. He's an apostle. So he starts off in, in, in that first section with, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received. And see how he balances that out at the end? Whether then it was I, verse 11 down the bottom here, or they, so we preach and so you believe. So he puts himself and the other apostles together and say, listen, this is the only thing we've said from the beginning. Christ rose from the dead. All right? This is the argument he's making. He reminds them that he's an apostle. Verse 3 Right? For, for I deliver to you as of first importance what I also receive, for I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecute the church of God. And we'll get into why he does that negative on himself. But what I'm getting at here is the first thing that he wants to be clear about, this is not his opinion. This is not Paul's theology. This is something that is from the very beginning. And in fact, these words in 3a, as of first importance, they can be understood to mean something along the lines of, this is the essential gospel. This is the basic tenet of our faith. The beginnings of our faith. And to support this, he quotes what basically amounts to the very earliest creed of the Christian faith. Okay, so he, this center here, this, this fourth, the cross, you're going to see in a second, in resurrection first appearance, from verse 3b through the end of 5, this is a quote by Paul, which is basically the first creed of our faith. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelfth. Okay? This is the centerpiece of this homily. And this is the earliest Christian creed. This is something Paul did not make up. This is something he had received through tradition. All right. Now let me do a quick side note so you can help me with that. While most English translations don't capture this as a quote, and if you have your Bibles open on your phones or maybe you're texting, Kim, I don't know. But if you have your Bibles open on your phones... Um, <laughs> on Facebook. You'll see that. You'll, you'll see that there, there's no quotes. And that's, there's a couple reasons for that. Is one is in first century Greek, they didn't use quotation marks. Okay? So this is something the translators, when they would come to this word, that, see this word, that's translated as that, 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 the translators have to make a decision. Is, is he about to quote something and its direct speech, or is this indirect speech, and it should be that? Well, here's four reasons why most scholars agree this is a quote. Okay, well, I already gave you one. That that can lead to direct speech. And also, look how it's placed so perfectly in front of four different lines that all go together in a very formatted way, it was a quote. Number two, the twelve, then to the twelve, this, this is not something that Paul would say. In all of his writings, he never says the twelve. But that's very common language for the Gospels. Okay? Number three, likewise... Paul, whenever he was quoting, would always say, it is written. Paul doesn't say, according to the scriptures. That's nowhere in the Pauline library, according to the scriptures. Again, that's something that's very consistent with what eventually made it into the Gospels. And finally, Paul understood sin, that Christ died for our sins. Paul understood sin as a singular. Bailey points out, Paul thought it was a power that holds people in bondage, not a series of individual acts. So again, sins, this would not be Paul's wording. And this is important, important. I'm not just doing this as as an academic exercise. This is important for us. Because Bailey points out, the use of this tradition tells us that Paul did not create the idea that Christ died for our sins. Instead, he confessed this early creed which came to him from the Christian tradition. It's important us to know. Important because we're talking about faith, remember? Faith. It's good to have reasons why we believe, even though at the end of the day it's still a belief. And it's important. E. Ellis helps us understand just how important this is. As an apostle, Paul defines himself as the bearer of the word and works of another, Jesus the Messiah. By that designation, he represents himself not as an innovator, as he is often accused to be, but as one who stands within the context of a tradition. Paul's insertion into a letter of pre-formulated traditions composed by his colleagues is instructive in many ways. It reveals the extent to which his mission was a corporate enterprise involving many participants. This is huge. This is big for us who call ourselves Christians. N.T. Wright goes on to say on this. This, the early tradition, the creed that Paul quotes this, is the kind of foundation story with which a community is not at liberty to tamper. It was probably formulated within the first two or three years after Easter itself. Since it was already in formulaic form when Paul received it, we are here in touch with the earliest Christian tradition, with something that was being said two decades or more before Paul wrote his letter. And finally, Fee does an excellent job of connecting Paul's use of the tradition here to his insistence that, at the beginning of this letter, that the gospel is not wisdom humanly conceived, but the true story of a crucified Messiah who died on behalf of sin. It's huge for those of us who believe. In short, Christ's death and resurrection, being redemptive, being the gospel, is the very beginnings of our faith. This is not a later idea that someone came up with. This is how the very first Christians understood it. And that is huge. And I I know maybe I'm more excited about this than, than most of you, but for me diving so deeply into Paul has been invaluable. Because one of the strongest critiques of Christianity is that, well Jesus was just this thing and then later on people started telling the story about what he No. The people who were with him and saw him die and then rose again understood that that's what his death was about. This is enormous to understand. There are entire books written that, you know, Paul was not really a Christian and Paul created this whole thing. No, no. Now, all of those people that saw Jesus rise from the dead, maybe they're wrong, but what I'm getting at is my faith, our faith in a dead and then risen Christ that saves us from our sins, is the very earliest understanding of the Christian faith. There was no other understanding of Christ's death from the very beginning. To embrace this truth, that Christ died and rose again to save us from sin and the effects of sin, is to embrace the very initial understanding of our faith. It is to embrace how Jesus Christ Himself understood it. This is my body which is given for you. This cup which is poured out for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ was never understood differently by Christians. In an age of cynicism, when everyone tries to find reasons not to believe, I find it incredibly hopeful to know that the core of what we choose to believe is consistent with what the very first Christians believed. The people who themselves saw a risen Christ. And in a world of death, and death is everywhere, it is hopeful to know that our hope in our resurrection is not a magical idea fabricated in some recent blog post or even by some monk centuries removed from the events in our scriptures. But our hope is consistent with the hope of the very first Christians and of the many millions who have come before us across the ages. We're a small group that meets here on Sunday morning. We have small communities of friends and family in different parts of the world that we're a part of, but they're small. And sometimes, you know, when you're staring death and cynicism in the face all the time, be hard to hold on to our hope, our singular hope. I work the, the basketball games for the local high school where I live. And there's a, a girl on the team and her, her dad's almost lost his battle with cancer. And this week's game was in was honor of her her dad and another girl on the team's mom has cancer as well he was there you know it was beautiful but it was sad too he's in a wheelchair already It's, it's end of life now there's so much death so much randomness to death that To know that when we claim resurrection, we are in solidarity with a multitude of countless souls who believe in resurrection. We're not alone. We're in solidarity with the very author and finisher of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. It's beautiful. This this is our singular hope, and it's beautiful. There's no other hope in the face of death, none. The privilege of this singular hope is our calling to proclaim the resurrection as those who, with Paul, are absolutely convinced of its reality and significance. Such conviction leads us also to proclaim the gospel itself, the good news that God loves sinners and has made provision through Christ's death and resurrection to overcome our alienation so that we too may know divine forgiveness and have a sure hope for the future. Thanks be to God. Amen.